I'd like to welcome everyone to the fifth of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. These calls are held every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. They're free and open to the public. Please help me spread the word. We can't have enough information and analysis at this time. This is a slow disaster and we seem closer to the beginning than we are to the end of it. My name is Scott Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia, and I'm serving as the host for these discussions. The link to this discussion is the same every day. So if you found us through the Zoom link, you will find us here with the same link every weekday. Please do help me spread the word, send suggestions for guests and topics, and please suggest yourself as a guest if you are, have some expertise to share. You can also hear these COVID calls recorded as podcasts. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for COVID calls. I will also make the link available via my Twitter handle, at US of Disaster. As of today, there are globally 266,115 COVID-19 cases, according to Johns Hopkins University School of Public Health. 16,638 of those cases are in the United States, almost double now the number in South Korea. As of today, Johns Hopkins reports 216 deaths in the United States. I just wanna to say today, coming at the end of a week of doing these calls, and especially after speaking with Esther Chernak yesterday, how humbled I am by the intense work of our healthcare professionals and the people that support them. And if you know one, drop them an email now, thanking them, leave them a voice message of support and thanks. Or if you're like me and have a doctor living across the street, wave to him and chat to him, um, offer support. I'm gonna post links on how we can send food and supplies and I just think it's crucial that we use this moment to come together behind these folks. The emergency managers are not far behind them as well as the first responders. And as far as the disaster researchers go, uh, I don't think anyone needs to buy us lunch, but we do have a role to play now. So let's boost each other and amplify expert voices. On Monday, March 23rd, uh, this Monday, we will get international perspectives on the COVID calls. I will speak with Daniel Lawrence of the Disaster Research Unit at the Frau Universität in Berlin, as well as Gonzalo Basigalupe of the Research Center for Integrated Disaster Risk Management in Santiago, Chile and UMass Boston. So we're gonna get Chilean and German EU perspectives on Monday. We have a really uh, dense lineup of experts next week. So today, I'm very eager to talk with Dr. Samantha Montano and Dr. Patrick Roberts. I think the world of both of them and their expertise, and I'm really glad they could spend some time today. Samantha is currently a visiting assistant professor in the Emergency Management and Disaster Science Program at the University of Nebraska, Omaha. She specializes in nonprofit and volunteer involvement in disasters and does public engagement work related to the relationship between emergency management and climate change. Her forthcoming book about disasters and climate change will be published by Park Row Books in the summer of 2021. Patrick is associate professor in the Center for Public Administration and Policy at Virginia Tech. He is the author of Disasters and the American State, How Politicians, Bureaucrats, and the Public Prepare for the Unexpected. Cambridge University Press 2013. Samantha, Patrick, thank you so much to both of you for making time to talk today. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Scott. So I would like to remind everybody, if you have questions, I'm sure you will for our experts, please post them in the chat and we will get to them as we go through the conversation. So I'm gonna throw the first question uh, today, uh, Samantha, to you. We heard last week 
that President Trump had made a disaster declaration, a national disaster declaration. Um, what does that mean? What do disaster declarations mean in the United States? Um, what is a presidential disaster declaration? Walk us through that a little bit and what that means. Sure. So there have been a number of different declarations that have been made. They all have similar names, but are all very different from one another. There's been widespread confusion about this, even like good media outlets have been mixing these up. So it is okay if you are confused. Um, so just to kind of walk everybody through it. So the first uh, emergency declaration that was made was the public health emergency declaration, which was made uh, by uh, HHS under the Public Health Service Act. Uh, that was made several weeks ago. Um, and then la uh, yeah, last week, uh, we saw that uh, the president made two different declarations on the same day. The first was that he declared a national emergency, which is under the National Emergencies Act. Uh, basically, that allows um, the president to access different laws, powers, and funds, um, and kind of broadens his authority over various issues. Um, there is precedent for that being used in a public health emergency. It was used uh, during H1N1, so that isn't super unusual there. Uh, although it's kind of a controversial uh, declaration, so uh, that's where some of that like controversy was coming from. Then there was a third declaration that was made, which is the emergency declaration made by the president under the Stafford Act. Um, this is a kind of a blanket emergency declaration for every state and territory in the U.S. Uh, this is a, a bit different. This is this is done under the Stafford Act. So usually when there's a disaster, we kind of uh, a state governor requests uh, either an emergency or a disaster declaration via the Stafford Act through the White House. Um, this was done slightly differently. Um, it was uh, a different section in the Stafford Act where the president can act on his own to, uh, to issue that declaration. So those are the like three key declarations that have been made. Um, there is a possibility for a, kind of like another subset of declarations, which are presidential disaster declarations. Uh, this also falls under the Stafford Act and is done through the president himself. Um, right now, uh, so this process, it does need to be a request from a governor. So right now, New York State has, Governor uh, Cuomo has requested a presidential disaster declaration. Uh, last I checked, it has not been issued yet. He asked for it a few days ago, so we're kind of waiting to see how that pans, pans out. I do believe a couple other states have also requested a declaration or are in the process of doing so. There's some questions uh, with the disaster declaration because um, depending on how you read the Stafford Act, a virus may not constitute a disaster in how they've defined it. So. Um, you know, there's some kind of lawyer issue, <laughs> legal issues going right. on there. Um, but yeah, and then uh, one last set of declarations are being done at a more local level and then also at a state level. So um, the organization Healthcare Ready has been keeping an ongoing interactive map of all the different states and their declarations. At this point, every state has either declared a public health emergency or declared an emergency. Some have done both um, and those are kind of evolving. And then also just like local governments have various types of declarations that are unfolding. So 
that's that's a brief summary. Thank you. No, it's like disaster federalism 101. So we have municipal disaster declarations or county, state, and then national, and then there are presidential declarations made under the normal sort of presidential declaration system that are going to individual states. You mentioned the Stafford Act a few times. I know some of the people on this call live and breathe the Stafford Act, but not everyone knows what it is. Could I give you the challenge to briefly explain to us what in the world the Stafford Act is? Sure. So uh, the easiest way to think about this is, it, you know, it's really the cornerstone of U.S. disaster policy. So it was signed into law in 1988 by Reagan, um, and it kind of just outlines for us what the various, you know, powers of FEMA and the declaration powers for the president, uh, you know, it, it outlines all of those. Um, the thing that's kind of unique about the Stafford Act is uh, most of the time when we're talking about disaster or emergency management policy, we see kind of this like reactionary approach taken to policy. Uh, like we saw this after 9-11, after Katrina with the post-Katrina Emergency Reform Act. Uh, it's kind of like a disaster happens and then everybody says, oh, we didn't respond well, let's change everything. And there's this kind of like knee-jerk reaction. And so what was uh, more unique about the Stafford Act is that um, it, it was created more intentionally um, and uh, it, it kind of was done in an effort to modernize emergency management. Um, and so, you know, it's been several decades at this point, but, uh, but that's, you know, the basis of our policy that we're going off of. So we had a chance to visit a little bit earlier today, and you said that as far as the emergency management system goes in the United States, we're in an unprecedented moment. Can you say a little bit more about what you mean by that? Sure. So, you know, everyone's trying to kind of find this historical comparison. And in terms of emergency management in the U.S., I don't really think there is one. Um, you know, when we talk about emergency management, it's not just FEMA, right? There are emergency managers at the national level, but every single state has an emergency management agency. Counties have emergency management agencies, state or uh, local governments have EMs, uh, then, you know, businesses have emergency managers, organizations have emergency managers. I mean, it's really this multi-layered and diffuse system that we have for, for managing disasters. And so when we think about this situation, the reason I say it's unprecedented is that there has not ever been another time where every single emergency management agency in the country at all levels of government are essentially active at the same time. Uh, the closest we can really come to, I think, is 9-11, possibly, right? But even then, there's a, a real distinction between kind of like a state of readiness and actually responding to needs in your community. Um, and so, you know, when we think about kind of the way we usually approach responding to a disaster, this looks a lot different because usually a disaster happens in a more isolated geographic area. And when that community's emergency management is overwhelmed, you pull in emergency managers from surrounding communities or from the state or from the federal government. And while obviously there will, of course, be some of that going on, it's, you know, if every community is in crisis at the same time, what resources do you have to give to others? And, and kind of what does that mutual aid end up looking like? So um, if you, I, I like to think about the emergency management system in terms of its capacity to respond to a situation. And, and right now um, that capacity is, is strained to say the least. 
Well, thank you for that. I, I've been, um, like you, I've been groping for historical precedents here. And the closest I can come uh, is actually disaster that didn't happen, but the planning for uh, an all-out nuclear attack in the Cold War. And uh, Patrick, I want to come to you on that because you're, you're an expert here. And, and you said earlier that maybe we should be thinking, you know, civil defense is back. What's the, take us back a little bit further in the context of the Cold War and understanding how we got this emergency management system that we have today. And, and what do you mean when you say civil defense is back? Yeah, may, maybe there isn't a, there's not another disaster that we've dealt with exactly like this, but uh, as the old saying goes- Patrick, uh, I think we're having a little trouble with your audio there. Can you hear me all right now? Um, it's got a lot of crackle on it. We may need to... Uh, l let me come back to you and uh, go to uh, Samantha. Okay, no problem. Um, Samantha, let me, um, let me follow up with you, sort of talking a little bit more about emergency management uh, as it's practiced in the United States. Um, wondering if you could take us inside the emergency operations centers. I know you have a lot of colleagues and friends who are emergency managers. What's happening inside emergency operations centers around the United States right now? Yeah, let me start with a caveat. I'm not currently in an emergency operations center, so I'm giving you information based on what we usually see and then also what I've heard, like you've said, from colleagues and friends that are in emergency operations centers right now. So maybe let me start by just saying what an EOC is. Um, so an EOC is uh, very often a physical location where you get as uh, many people in the same room as you can that are involved in some way uh, in the unfolding disaster. Um, you're really looking to help coordinate the response. You're pulling in information from various sources as you get it. Um, you're, you know, ordering resources, sending resources out, dealing, you know, and communicating with operational folks who may be kind of in and out from the field. Um, again, this is going to look very, very different depending on where you are physically located and kind of where, um, where you're located within government and what the state of your community is and whatnot. Um, but, um, you know, right now, uh, EOCs are, are kind of up and running across the country. Uh, there, there is a, a fair amount of telecommuting going on right now with EOCs, which is a little bit more unusual. Um, this, uh, Pete Gaynor uh, was talking about this earlier today in an interview. They're, you know, even doing telecommuting uh, with FEMA. Pete Gaynor is the administrator of FEMA, right? Yes. Um, you know, so they're, you know, even trying to telecommute there as much as possible. Um, and then various agencies across the country also as people are kind of put in quarantine, trying to keep people from being exposed and whatnot. Um, one thing that we've uh, kind of been, some of us have been talking about is how, uh, you know, the approach you usually take to an emergency operations center is to get people kind of like physically packed in the same space. And obviously given um, the, the parameters of this situation, that's the exact opposite of what you want to be doing. So trying to kind of practice social distancing while there. Um, in terms of kind of what they're actually doing, in addition to those things I listed, um, again, this is going to look different from state to state, someplace like Washington State or California or New York, where they've been at this for several weeks already, you know, they're working really long shifts, they're, you know, full on kind of response mode. 
other places like in Nebraska or Iowa or, you know, states where, you know, there hasn't been um, like a huge explosion yet of cases. Um, it's still more kind of gearing up, still kind of assessing the situation, still trying to look forward and kind of plan what the next couple days, couple weeks, couple months actually is going to look like. Um, doing a lot of public outreach, communication, kind of vertically and horizontally across agencies and with the public, addressing rumors, all kinds of different things. And of course, you know, like I said, this is going to look a lot different uh, in New York City as it does to rural North Dakota, but, um, you know, already, already starting to get all those pieces in places or yeah, get all those pieces into place. Right. Th thank you for that. I mean, um, Patrick, let, let's, let's come back to you and see how we're doing with the Sure, we'll try to see see how we're doing. Let me know if you can hear yeah, great. better. That's that's great. Yeah, thanks. So just bringing bringing you back. So Sam was just orienting us to what's going on in emergency operations centers around the country today. Um, can you take us back to this um, sort of earlier age and maybe a time in which a disaster of this scale was actually imagined as something manageable by experts in the Cold War and the civil defense era? Right, as uh, you know, historians like to say, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Uh, we haven't had an exact analogy to this uh, coronavirus in the past, uh, but there's some similarities between now and the civil defense age. Ever, if it ever went away, uh, uh, to begin with, what was the civil defense age uh, after World War II? We had the emergence of the Cold War and competition between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, and fear of nuclear attack and mutually assured destruction. Uh, and, and civil defense was uh, a program uh, that came out of uh, World War II, but had some echoes in World War I to prepare uh, the home front for attack uh, by nuclear weapons uh, through protective measures, famously duck and cover and uh, uh, this sort of thing, right. but also through a program of installing federal government officials and procedures in states and localities in a very new way through this network of civil defense officials and recruiting citizens uh, on behalf of the federal government for this cause to do things like spotting for airplanes that would come in invading. Uh, you know, they didn't, but uh, there were people who signed up for these kind of programs and civil defense also eventually became to be used for natural disasters like uh, building shelters or evacuations from floods and hurricanes. Mm. Do you see this disaster that we're living with now somehow exacerbating um, global tensions in some way? I mean, the context of the Cold War is obviously United States and Soviet Union in tension, and now we have this unfolding global disaster. What, what, is this, what does this mean for international relations? Can disasters sort of realign the way that nations look at each other and interact? Yes, absolutely. It's like it's like civil defense in that way. Uh, I, I think uh, our moment is like the civil defense era in two ways. One, in this era of global competition, uh, in civil defense, you had this uh, competition between the U.S. and the Soviet Union uh, that foreign policy experts refer to as great power competition. Uh, and the Trump administration has made this so-called great power competition uh, a new centerpiece of its national security strategy. Uh, sort of superseding the, the focus on terrorism that came before. Uh, and by great power competition, you know, it's really uh, Russia and China. Uh, and so in this case, the U.S. and China have had uh, rhetoric and sort of framing uh, the different responses and the ways in which the different systems have responded to this crisis. Uh, and that will continue to 
frame the response to the crisis. Part of civil defense uh, in its Cold War era uh, uh, form was a message to the opposing side from the US to the Soviet Union or the Soviet Union to the US saying, we're ready uh, and look how well our civilization and our, our society is prepared for this event. There might be something similar going on with, with uh, China. I mean, is this a way to understand what to me has been um, really irksome, the people in the administration and the Trump administration using this China virus kind of language? I mean, is this some, some attempt at some kind of realpolitik around pandemic or is that, am I giving them too much credit? Yeah, I, I don't know if it's realpolitik or, 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 or something else, but uh, they're, uh, the national security strategy and approach of, of the administration, you look at the national security strategy, which is sort of the cornerstone document of what they're trying to do, really says great power competition is back again, uh, thinking about these big states and big threats, rather than maybe terrorism of, of an earlier era. Uh, and so that frames, that's the lens through which uh, this competition and this sort of virus is viewed at a, at a foreign policy international level. Uh, and I think we'll see that continue to unfold, but I think no one knows exactly how. Well, let's bring it back to what's happening literally right now. Uh, today, President Trump invoked the Defense Production Act. Maybe, uh, Patrick, would you mind just telling us what, what that is and what that means? And again, this there's a little bit of a Cold War context here as well, I believe. Absolutely. Here's the, the second way in which the civil defense era is backed, uh, the, the Defense Production Act, uh, which has, has been invoked for a number of uh, different things, but it uh, initially came out of 1950 and the Korean War effort. And the idea that uh, to prosecute, to further this Korean War, uh, the president and the federal government need certain powers uh, to make use of all the resources in society, including the private sector, for mobilization, for getting ready uh, and in particular, uh, in that case, for manufacturing, the steel industry, metals, mining, uh, to say we're going to need to make planes and ships and that sort of thing. And it's really going to come top down from the president and the federal government on down. Uh, and so that happened uh, in, uh, in the Cold War. Um, but there were limits. Uh, if you, you remember from your Constitutional one, uh, Law 101 class, the uh, uh, steel seizure case, uh, which was a Supreme Court case in which uh, President Truman tried to seize the steel mills to really take them over uh, and say you're going to make uh, uh, these uh, steel and it's going to be used in the war effort at this price uh, and the Supreme Court essentially said uh, that's that's too far uh, and the, the argument was on the basis of uh, the Defense Production Act and the inherent power of the president uh, but the Supreme Court put some limits on that uh, so we're not going to go that far today, but how far can the president go? Well, the president can use with the Defense Production Act things like uh, low interest, no interest loans, uh, guaranteed contracts, et cetera, uh, to get the private sector locked into long-term contracts to provide needed medical supplies or protective equipment uh, to fight, you know, not a, a little war, but this war-style effort against this virus. I've I've heard you know from many private sector firms that you know they were ready to volunteer uh, you know material and to move into production as needed. So why is the Defense Production Act needed at all? I mean, 
Can't we rely upon private firms to take signals either from the marketplace or from state and local authorities who make requests and then they, they retool? Is there some, what's, what's the value added by the president invoking the Defense Production Act? Yeah, I, I think we'll see. We heard on Wednesday the president say uh, he was going to invoke the Defense Production Act. Uh, there was an um, announcement today that he says he is, so I think, uh, uh, but we don't actually know exactly what that means. Uh, I, I think um, many people uh, who work on this in government think there needs to be a very coordinated response uh, uh, and that you know, over the long term uh, the, the market uh, works. Uh, but you really need a coordinated response. Uh, no one exactly knows how long this crisis is going to go on. Uh, you might need to retrain some people, uh, repurpose some some manufacturing facilities, and really have a long-term contract. So um, the Defense Production Agency will cut through some red tape and some procedures to really get those contracts and those uh, whatever they might be loans uh, in place to, to have that happen more. You know, as a historian, I find you know a lot of times when when I've studied like World War II or World War One or even Civil War, the things that always stand out to me, uh, unfortunately, they're the things that often other people find the most boring, but I find the most uh, really interesting, which is the way that complicated enterprise ach enterprises achieve coordination under stress. You know, and that's a lot of what civil defense planning was about, and I think to a certain extent. Um, Sam, isn't that really what our sort of emergency management system is supposed to be about? Sort of achieving levels of coordination at local, state, and federal levels under um, inopportune conditions? Are, I mean, a lot of people don't find that that interesting, but when you see it snap into place, it's, it's really extraordinary. Are, are, we, yeah. are we seeing that? Are we not seeing that? What are you, you know, in terms of how well things are coordinated right now, what do you, what do you think? Sure. I mean, theoretically, emergency management is trying to coordinate in times of crisis. Um, of course, that is incredibly difficult to do, especially as that crisis grows in size and scope and severity. Um, to your question of whether or not we're doing that right now, um, again, you have to kind of look at it in, in these different pieces, right? So there may be, and I think this is true across the country, there are local communities, local emergency management agencies that are coordinating well amongst themselves and those agencies involved around them um, that are, you know, have a good relationship with their state level emergency management, may even have a good relationship with their, you know, FEMA region offices and whatnot. Um, so there is, yes, there is some good coordination that is supposedly happening across the country at the same time though the you, you do need to consider the federal level coordination that's happening right now and that i think is where there is room for some criticism here um, particularly in the white house's handling of things i think um you know the initial approach of hhs declaring a public health emergency hhs being the lead agency on this situation is what our plans say, right? Whether that's right or wrong, we can talk about later in retrospect, but I mean, that, that was what the plan was, right? Um, and I think the point where there's more of a question is where, at what point do you realize that the plans that you have written down on paper for whatever reason are not adequate and there needs to be some kind of shift? Um, and I think, you know, in the past day or so, 
the language they're using is that FEMA is now the in charge of the national response. I'm not, I like want to be cautious there. <laughs> there. There is like a lot, uh, some confusion it seems about what exactly that means. Um, but you know, when we think about hallmarks of effective responses, we are looking at things like that there is coordination. And I would say so far at a federal level, there like has not been effective coordination among various agencies. I think that's where a lot of this confusion is coming from. Um, you know, there's effective communication. Clearly that has not been happening uh, again at the federal level. Uh, you know, that there is some level of trust among the agencies and groups that are involved and then also the public. and. Clearly, that is something that ha has been challenging thus far. So uh, definitely, there's room for criticism. And it, it's also just important to understand that in emergency management, it's not just about what you do, it's when you do it. And I think that, you know, there, there's cr criticisms to be made about or discussions to be had about what actual actions have been taken, also different from what actions have people have said have been taken, right? What has actually happened? But then also when those actions have happened, right? Craig Fugate is like famous for saying you, I don't know the terms he uses, but he says you throw everything you have at the problem. And then if you've ended up throwing too much at it, then oh well, like that's okay. But in times of crisis, like there's no, there's no room for error. There's no room to not move fast enough. Like urgency is of the essence here. And, um, you know, looking across the federal response, it's, I, I mean, I think it's like pretty obvious that that has not been happening. So you, you mentioned, um, you know, previously you were talking about HHS, Health and Human Services, you're talking about FEMA, which is an agency inside a mega agency called the Department of Homeland Security. And I think we'll come back to maybe some of the issues between those, those two uh, agencies in a minute, but you've mentioned Fred, Craig Fugate, and this was making the rounds yesterday on Twitter. Um, and um, he's known to blow his stack once in a while. He was the former FEMA administrator during Hurricane Sandy. And um, he got up in the middle of a, of a, this was an interview going on, and Andy Slavitt was talking about the failure of coordination among agencies, kind of similar to what you're just talking about. And Fugate ripped his microphone off and said, I'm not going to sit here and listen to this anymore. What What is he reflecting there? What, where is that frustration coming from? Was it something uh, about that that discussion specifically or something just about this moment in time? I mean, I, I like won't speak. I'm asking for you to be our Craig Fugate <laughs> whisperer here. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what he is exactly thinking. I can tell you my interpretation of that from the outside looking in. Um, you know, yeah, I please think do. That, it's important. I mean, that expression of anger and frustration at this time is really reflecting what a lot of people feel. So right. I, I think we want to talk about when the public officials act that way. I think that's that's a valuable moment for us to talk. Definitely. Um, yeah, I, my, again, my interpretation of this was uh, one that he was kind of reflecting what I think a lot of emergency managers and emergency management experts have been feeling now for many days and weeks across the country, which is that uh, from, you know, we're not, we're not public health experts, we're not medical doctors, but from a an emergency management perspective, this response has not been effective. It has not been adequate. Again, by those like many measures that you can take. And so for emergency managers, I think it's been really frustrating to watch this unfold. I've been using this analogy a lot, but you know, 
in times of crisis, there you're walking down a road and there's forks in that road. And at different points, you can either, you know, go down the the correct path or you can go down the the path that leads to more turmoil and at every turn we've gone down the wrong path and so for emergency managers sitting in emergency operations centers around the country i think there's just a lot of frustration of you know we know this is not how we run a response and yet we have no power really um to to do anything about that and uh you know Emergency managers also just like as a profession are, are in kind of a position of needing to maintain uh, or historically have wanted to maintain, um, you know, uh, to, to kind of be apolitical as much as possible and to not kind of get into the, the back and forth that happens during disasters because, you know, they want to be prioritizing operations and they want to be building public trust and whatnot and you know they're you know so sure um, but that means that a lot of that frustration i think has been festering over the past few weeks and uh particularly where hhs is in charge rather than fema you know that's replicated at that local level too where pub public health agencies have tended to be in charge as opposed to local em agencies again some variation across the country there and so i think that so some of that frustration had probably been bubbling up uh, for for Fugate. Um, again, I know like personally it has for me and, and again, others that I've spoken to. So I, I think that was a huge part of it. I, I also think though, in terms of like the actual content of that conversation that they were having is that uh, Andy Slavitt was kind of uh, slightly more trying to have like this ideological conversation over the role of the state and the federal government in an emergency and that's fine but I think Craig and maybe more emergency managers are thinking about this more in terms of an operational way right what like <laughs> now's not the time to like figure out this bigger ideological problem necessarily like we need to figure out what we're doing right now like people's lives are on the line and that needs to be the most important thing we need to address needs immediately and what is realistically the way that we can do that um and so i think that maybe that was also part of why that was the moment where that frustration came out again i'm not Greg fugate so i don't know but that was my interpretation sure, no. watching it unfold no i i I appreciate that. And I, I think um, just we can take this a little bit further. Before we got on this call, I was listening to NPR and they were talking about, um, you know, problems of social distancing in New York state courts. And it was really, it was really insightful report because it sort of showed how much people just expect um, the government just to keep working in these moments of crisis, you know, and um, I think, you know, so let's bring it back to the emergency managers. Uh, once this, be as the crisis continues to grow and there's every indication it's going to continue, how are, so we already know that health, that doctors are being asked to basically, social, distance, social distancing is not possible. Their social distancing is keeping themselves away from their families or other people after they've been in the clinic. But what about emergency managers and other people in the national sort of response network more broadly? How are they going to simultaneously do their jobs and then also maintain so social distance or other kinds of measures to keep themselves healthy and safe? I, I mean, as far as I know, the folks that I've talked to, again, they're, they're talking about trying to kind of telecommute as much as possible. Um, 
also just like physically in whatever space they're in, trying to maintain social distancing as, as much as possible. Um, I, I've had I've heard some agencies are looking at kind of like altering shifts to kind of um, kind of spread out when pe certain people are are in the office and whatnot, but. Um, I mean, at some point it is going to become an issue and obviously emergency managers aren't necessarily on the front lines in the same way that healthcare workers are, but um, there, there are some important parallels, I think, there, even at just in terms of how we've been talking about flattening the curve in terms of the capacity of the healthcare system. I mean, that exact same thing can be applied to flattening the curve for the benefit of the emergency management system as well, right? Anything we can do to kind of, um, to not overwhelm that capacity that I was talking about earlier is, is important for emergency managers too and, and hopefully contributes to kind of keeping them healthy um, as we move forward. So our friends in, in government sometimes, my, I'll speak for myself, my friends in government sometimes find it a little irritating um, when academics focus, we seem to focus disaster researchers, we don't write books about the responses that go well, we write our, our reports and books about the moments where um, there were failures. And Patrick, I wanna bring that to you because um, I think, you know, we want to give as much credit as possible, and, and that's why I started at the beginning really applauding what's happening within the health system. Whatever may be happening at the strategic level, at the tactical level in terms of response, they're doing their jobs and really then and a lot more. But you're an expert in the way that these agencies should operate. Health and Human Services, Department of Homeland Security. Um, take us into that a little bit. What are they doing right? But well, what's not working well and how do we understand? How do we understand the slowness of HHS to get started um, with the tests? How do we understand the, the, what Sam was talking about earlier? Some of these problems of, seem to be coordination and communication within DHS and then across the two agencies. Can you bring us into that a little bit at the sort of governmental agency level? Yeah, I think there's a horizontal area uh, uh, issue across agencies, so HHS, uh, Department of Homeland Security, FEMA, uh, et cetera. Uh, then there's a vertical uh, coordination issue, meaning from the federal government to states to localities, including county health departments, uh, Samantha's emergency managers, the hospitals themselves, the healthcare system. Uh, so they're both of these systems of coordination. Uh, and what's working well and not not well, um, we, we've heard the stories uh, about the slowness to testing, and I, I think more will come out, you know, when when uh, when historians certainly look at the meeting notes of exactly what happened there. Um, so slow to test, uh, that didn't go well, particularly in this country, look at other countries, they got that right. Um, I, I would say relatively quick to uh, shut down uh, and slow American society and do this social distancing. I would not have expected uh, that to happen so quickly and so un uniformly. I don't know about, about uh, you folks, uh, so I thought that happened very quickly. Uh, it remains to be seen how long it goes on. Uh, I would have even maybe predicted more of a UK style response in which uh, some vulnerable populations were, were, were uh, curtailed their activity much more, but other things went on. Uh, I, I think there was some, you know, maybe there's some media contagion uh, uh, process to that. Maybe this Imperial College London report uh, really turned things around, but I was surprised at the-, the What's media? closed what's hold on what's media what's media contagion 
that uh, people saw uh, bad things happening in other countries, and it's happening in Italy, in northern Italy, and there are these stories, and my neighboring county or my neighboring state is closing their schools. Why aren't you closing our schools? And someone writes that on Facebook or Twitter or calls or texts, uh, and public officials feel like, uh, wow, I don't want to take that risk. Uh, this is serious. There's some seem to be some tipping point. I see. So the Trump administration has been pretty notorious for um, not getting um, bogged down, is the way they look at it, I think, in pursuing uh, confirmation for all of their cabinet level uh, leadership or even further down. Do you, do you think that's mattered in, in this case, the, the, the leadership in these agencies and whether or not they're confirmed or not, the amount of experience they have? Can you take us into that a little bit? In some of my other research uh, uh, with colleagues, and there are other colleagues who do great work on this, uh, Bill Resch at USC, and uh, uh, if you follow Twitter, Ann O'Connell, a uh, uh, law professor um, at Stanford, is re really on top of this research. Uh, but I think the research shows, on balance, uh, in many cases, uh, confer Senate-confirmed appointees in the federal government um, often act with more authority uh, and uh, are there longer term uh, than uh, so-called acting officials. Uh, and they can be very important to uh, take risks, to, to speak out, uh, to lead new initiatives. Uh, and that is a case where the president uh, nominates someone uh, in a leadership position of federal government agency, and then they pass through Senate confirmation. There's a Senate uh, confirmation, a vote uh, on their service, and they carry the, the this authority of uh, 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 from the Senate. Uh, in other cases, officials can serve on, on an acting basis or, or some other similar kind of basis. Uh, and sometimes those officials are great people. They're sometimes civil servants who are elevated um, and they can do great things, uh, but sometimes they have less authority, particularly in the interagency process where there might be some jockeying about who's going to take responsibility for this uh, particular thing. So in the case of HHS, uh, the cabinet secretary uh, Mr. Azar is Senate confirmed, uh, but in the case of the DHS, the secretary uh, is acting, who may be very competent and very skilled, um, but in other cases, uh, research shows that, that the acting has a little bit less authority in the interagency process. is not the first time that a, a presidential administration has chafed against what they see as a slowness of bureaucracy in the midst of a disaster. I mean, you know, Obama brought Ron Klain in during the Ebola outbreak, right? To be, I mean, we, we do see these sort of, uh, sometimes the, I don't, I hate the term, but they say, well, let's bring a czar in. We're going to make an immediate czar or a manager, somebody who's just like a city manager, somebody who's supposed to come in um, and be free of the politics and sort of have this extraordinary capacity to feed information directly to the president. Now, there's something slightly counterintuitive about that because the whole executive branch is supposed to be there to do that for the president. But notwithstanding, um, I wonder, you know, what you think about both to both of you in this particular moment and particularly the, the person who seems to have been handed that task, which I suppose is the president's son-in-law, 
Jared Kushner. Um, is 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 it clear to you what his role is here? Is he a, a sort of the, the Ron Klain um, to, in 2020? Is he serving a, in this capacity as a czar? What's, what's going on here? Because I'm trying to understand who's been advising the president on this and what capacity or, they may have to actually help us through this particular moment that we're in. Uh, from what I've read, uh, it looks like uh, Jared Kushner is taking a lead in trying to involve the private sector and Google and whatnot, and particularly the tech sector in some kind of response, um, which uh, which seems like an admirable effort. But uh, it seems that uh, Vice President Pence uh, has been given this uh, task force charge, although the term czar wasn't used, uh, to lead the response and has been given some kind of public face. And I think they... Uh, formal face during the interagency process to lead, lead the government's response. But then you also have uh, figures such as uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, who, who is certainly leading a lot of the public response about epidemiological questions. So I, I think you have these different, um, different leaders for different parts of the process. I have to confess to you that I had forgotten Pence entirely. Yeah until you just said that. That's amazing. That's been known to happen. Thank you, for remind, thank you for reminding me about the Vice President of the United States in this. Uh, and he was named the head of the task force about three or four years ago now, right? I mean, when was that even? This was just um, weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think maybe. Sam, what, <laughs> Sam, can you, I gotta, I gotta breathe for a second. Can you, t what do you think about what Patrick's saying here about Jared and about, about Pence and about the role of the special master or the czar or the task force leader, whatever it is in this moment? Sure. So, okay. <laughs> There's a few ways to think about this. I think this is, I think, I don't know, but this is, this is the way I've been thinking about it. So one thing that can sometimes be challenging is when you have too many people that are in positions of leadership, right? And so I think in that list of people that you, like those four people you just listed off, what are their various, what, like, what are their various roles? It's not clear necessarily. And I think there's the, you know, what are their operational roles right now versus what are their public facing roles? Those are two different questions. I mean, in terms of Kushner, you know, he, I've seen that he's coordinating businesses, like Patrick said, but also at, you know, going back a week, he was the one who was allegedly deciding on what declarations they were going to be issuing, right? And so he does not have any experience in that, of course. So there's uh, some serious questions, I feel personally, in terms of kind of what people's qualifications are to be in these positions and what what their understanding is even of these plans that we have, right? Again, we can question whether those plans are good or not, but are they even aware of what those plans are? Honestly, the way they approached the declaration situation made me think that they might not even fully understand those different declaration processes that exist. And so uh, there's, there's that issue. And again, it's, you know, we see the the public facing side of this, but who is behind the scenes actually making these decisions, I think it's kind of impossible for us to actually know. Um, so that's certainly one issue. I am curious to see if things change at all now that FEMA is allegedly taking on this larger role. Um, if, you know, if Pete Gaynor is going to kind of 
become a fifth person here in this collection of people within the federal government or if um, he'll be kind of more behind the scenes. Uh, you know, FEMA has a tendency to be the scapegoat in situations like this. So, uh, you know, I think it, it, it is difficult. And also just like to say this, if people are like watching this unfold and you're confused, like, yes, welcome to the club. Like even the experts <laughs> seem to be confused right now. Um, there, there is, uh, you know, it, it is confusing. And I would also say that, you know, usually in times of crisis, there is one person that kind of emerges at that national level as being kind of a leader. Um, and I don't necessarily know that we've seen that at this point. Um, I don't know, maybe that's just my own personal, that's my personal assessment, but um, I, it's also worth noting we have a, a long way to go here, so things can change. If I had to make a prediction, I would say that uh, based on past experience, governors and even mayors are going to become more important in the response. They already have been uh, because they have political incentives to uh, really meet the needs of their constituents, and there seems to be uh, some variation in the intensity of the, of the crisis in different places at different times. Uh, so I think you're going to see governors uh, maybe take some different steps, uh, and we saw that a little bit uh, in the Ebola crisis, even as limited as it was in terms of uh, issuing quarantines. Uh, Chris Christie and, and Andrew Cuomo saying, uh, all right, we're, we're going to quarantine these medical workers coming back from Africa, um, and, and that crisis was, was even less than we expect, expected. So I think we'll see more subnational officials uh, take the lead in their regions. Yeah, and I think that is also a good thing ultimately. This is also one of like Craig's Fugate, key, uh, his key points too, is that um, that state, state level organizations, governors need to be taking on this leadership role. And this is also, um, you know, a good time to point out that while there is, you know, one overall national disaster happening here, there are also like 50 plus other disasters happening, right? Every state is very different. Um, every state has different needs. They have different risks. They have different resources. And so to see leadership at a state level is actually helpful here, even if you still do want some kind of federal coordination going on above them. Um, they're just, again, the logistics of having every state in the middle of a crisis at the same time really requires that. And they're the ones closest to the ground in knowing what the actual needs of their communities are. So. I think that's right, uh, I think, Samantha. And I think that's why there's some talking past one another in the emergency management community and the public health community. And I, that's how I read that, that spat uh, with Craig Fugate, uh, that this is not like other emergencies or disasters. In some ways it is for the reasons you point out. You want these subnational governments to really take responsibility and focus on needs at, at their level. Uh, but it's also true, hey, everyone needs masks. Uh, everyone needs personal protective equipment. Everybody needs ventilators and critical care and trained hospital workers. Uh, so this is all at the same time, as you also pointed out. So this is different than some of the hurricanes and wildfires and even the triple uh, uh, disasters plus of 2017. Right. I think you've both made some excellent points there. And as you were, again, really um, discussing, uh, Sam, you said, you know, still quite early probably in this in in this slow disaster. So, and, and I, you know, it is, as you said earlier today, from an emergency management perspective, the response phase here is just unbelievably long. 
Um, and so there are going to be a number of different people, probably in a, in a leadership vacuum, you're going to see a number of different people who are going, to, are going to pop in and pop out as particular moments and particular skills are required. The other thing I think is probably to me is worth pointing out, there's good research that shows that governors, I mean, we are, in a, we are a democracy in the midst of a disaster. I mean, we don't suspend democracy and we don't suspend the competitive nature of democracy. And there's good research to show that um, mayors and governors um, they probably wouldn't describe it this way, but they see political opportunity in moments like this. Um, and, you know, the sort of classic story of Herbert Hoover, who was a cabinet secretary, not a governor, who saw opportunity in the, in the great Mississippi River floods and wasn't the only reason he was elected. But, you know, I guess I'm trying to put a little bit of a silver lining here on, the, on a, a stumbling federal response, but a more robust state response. In some cases, it may just come down to a good old-fashioned political self-interest. I mean, it's no mistake that that Cuomo has felt he should run for president. Um, you know, I don't know. Maybe we're uh-huh. should rely on the old Benjamin Franklin maxim of doing well by doing good in this particular moment. And if that's what it takes for them to lead, then I would say so be it. I want to pick up a couple of questions here. We have about seven minutes left. Kim Fortune's asking, um, "What is your perspective on the expectation of increasing civil unrest?" Uh, is this like other, what she points out, often overzealous concern about looting and other kinds of misconduct in disaster contexts? This is a tricky area for disaster researchers, um, but public officials don't always seem to take our advice that looting is is not common. What do you think, Sam? What are the things we'd be looking for um, to, to see some kind of concern among officials that civil unrest could uh, come out here, and what does civil unrest look like anyway under a uh, curfew and quarantine and required lockdown in states like California and New York? Uh, yeah, well, at the risk of trying to predict the future, um, I mean, definitely the disaster research would lead us to believe that um, that you know things like looting and other antisocial behavior won't necessarily be happening at least to you know any kind of overwhelming extent there will always be instances of panic and whatnot but you know i think also we can just look at how people have responded so far i mean overwhelmingly there has been a pro-social response to this situation um you know even with things like the run on toilet paper and you know people going to the grocery stores and whatnot uh, you know, even once you start kind of thinking through why people are buying certain items and like what's leading them to make those decisions and whatnot, they're making rational decisions based on the information that they have, right? The information they have might not be quite right, but based on that information they have, they are making rational decisions. And so even that isn't really panic, right? Uh, in terms of how we in research define panic. Um, And I have not seen a single case of looting anywhere in the country. I mean, stores are shut down right now, right? This is a good opportunity. I shouldn't say this, but it's a good opportunity to go rob a jewelry store or something. I mean, we're just not seeing that happen. So um, I feel confident in in those past findings of disaster research in, in terms of, you know, that 
limited antisocial behavior happening. And I think also we just see like a lot of positive examples. Also, I gave it negative examples. I should get positive ones too, right? Like we're seeing people come together. They're helping their elderly neighbors get groceries. They're babysitting each other's kids for, you know, the folks who do still need to go to work. Um, you know, people really are sacrificing immensely to come together in a national attempt to address this crisis. So again, even if there are instances of some kind of unrest in some form or even antisocial behavior, um, I think that pro-social behavior is still for sure outweighing it. I want to read a comment from Dave Nichols, which I appreciate very much. This is the first time he says that every state has been involved. And this comes back to what you were talking about earlier, Sam, and, and also talking about that civil defense planning that you were talking about, Patrick. Dave says, there's no one to get mutual aid from right now. So while the governors have to take charge, there's still things the feds can and should do. That is a really, I think, crucial context here, particularly if you're in places, and because of the lack of testing, um, we heard this yesterday, you know, state and municipal um, health officials may be flying blind. So while they may want to offer mutual aid, and in fact, the history of disaster response in the United States, it's, it's usually a problem. People, there's convergence, People send too much. It becomes a problem for first responders and emergency managers to deal with all the stuff people send them. This seems to be a different situation because nobody knows if they should be sending aid. It's literally a 50 state and territorial crisis in that sense. Thank you for that comment, Dave. I wanna, um, this is a question, uh, Virginia has a question for Sam. Do you have any thoughts, but I think it's relevant for Patrick too. Do you have any thoughts about how we in the academic community can support local and state level emergency managers during this during this time that to me is the question that underlies this entire series of calls you know how can we as disaster researchers be helpful and useful to practitioners sam you want to take the first pass at that sure um well uh <laughs> okay so the first thing i i think that's important is that those of us that are academics kind of take uh take our lead from those in practice um and so making ourselves available to them i think is really important as questions come up I, i've been getting a lot of questions from like local emergency managers saying you know as has this been done in the past do you know of another state that's trying to figure this out can you connect us with them if you happen to see it um you know what kind of precedent what kind of research is out there on this particular issue or that particular issue so i think kind of just as being a resource um, is one thing that we can do. Um, I, uh, I also think, and this is maybe like a little bit more controversial, but I also think that some of us in, uh, on the more academic side here are in a position to speak out a little bit more forcefully and bluntly about uh, criticisms of the response as it unfolds. And so I do also think that those of us that are in a position to be able to speak out need to be doing that right now, because if not now, when? Um, and uh, and then, I, yeah, I, I mean, I think those are, are kind of the two major things. Oh, and then the third other thing is that I do think that hopefully it's helpful to 
for academics to kind of be providing some of that more of that like context right like explaining things like the declaration processes like explaining so, some like historical context here that actually is really valuable I think for the public um, and we are the people that are in the positions to have the time and the knowledge and resources to actually kind of flesh that out for folks as this is unfolding um, and so I think kind of taking some of the burden off of practitioners right now in terms of of doing some of that public outreach it is potentially useful as well um, but again I, I think it's important to kind of defer to to those in practice uh, kind of as we're still in response here well I want to um, thank you for that and I want to echo that and I, I know we do have um, health practitioners and emergency managers, um, government officials, probably some journalists listening in on these calls. And I think, hopefully it goes without saying, but I'll say it, that those of us in the academic community who study disasters are eager to interface with you and to work with you. So you should feel free to reach out and talk to us and ask us if there's things we can do, please, please let us know. Um, I would say, come back to what I said earlier, or historians often, you know, kind of questions I get asked are, tell us some examples of cases that look like this in the past where things worked out well. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm still struggling with that one here, uh, I have to say, but um, that's no reason not to continue to try to build these connections. We're coming up on time, but I wanted to get to just one more question here by Gonzalo Basagalupe, who's going to be our, uh, one of our guests on Monday. This is for you, Patrick. He's asking, um, how is it that there's not an uprising in the agents in the federal agencies right now? And he's you know citing examples of Brazil, Chile, Mexico, and places where poor leadership in their agencies actually led to dissent in the ranks. You think we're going to see something like that in HHS, DHS, FEMA? Is it possible in the United States? Um, you know, the, the smart alecky answer is because everyone's working at home. Uh, uh, I think the better answer is that, uh, <laughs> as far as I know, uh, civil servants, uh, the people I see here in Washington, are really trying to pull together and really say, this, this is a common concern, a common enemy across politics, across ideology. Uh, even if we got a slow start, uh, now is the time to, uh, to really do whatever we can to fight this, to roll out testing, to uh, roll out the social distancing and protective measures, uh, and to uh, work on a vaccine as quickly as possible, and to support hospitals and public health however we can, and then make plans for the long and medium term, what do we do to get back to a new normal, depending on however long that takes. Uh, I know uh, Dave uh, said there's not gonna be mutual aid in the, in the conventional emergency management sense, but what if say you have someone who uh, has the virus and then they get better and they have immunity? You know, maybe they should be sent in to help somewhere else in a situation. Um, so you might have situations like that will encounter new things. So from what I see, pe people are really trying to trying to pull together. I like the way you're thinking about that, both in terms of highlighting the sort of pro-social nature of disaster response, which is documented historically across time, but also that as this plays out over months, um, the capacity for response is going to change over, over time. Um, so I wanna just um, close. For me, these COVID calls are about talking um, with people that I ordinarily would pick up the phone and call after a disaster and find out what's on their mind. So I'm going to give you each uh, that opportunity right now. Sam and Patrick, if you could make a call to another expert right now, who do you want to talk to? 
Um, well, I have a thread up on Twitter of a whole list of disaster experts that I've been kind of following and looking at for various emergency management and disaster related issues. So go look at that. Um, the one person that I've been following very closely is Kathleen Bergen. Um, she's disaster underscore lawyer on Twitter and uh, she's at a Cornell Law, and she has been digging into the Stafford Act and kind of digging through some of the more legal questions related to the response. Um, so she's a she's a good person to follow. Oh, thank you very much, Patrick. What about you? Uh, I have a lot of questions about epidemiology and the data and what's going to happen, and then also what do the China data really say? Uh, so I would call um, um, a. Uh, colleague of the RAND Corporation, Jennifer Bui, uh, who is uh, an epidemiologist and who has really looked at some of the China data, but also the US data uh, to figure out where we're going and what should we really be thinking about now that we would have uh, wished we were thinking about you know, a month from now. Thank you both for those suggestions for other people we could be turning to for information at this time. I wanna remind everyone that on Monday we have Daniel Lawrence and Gonzalo Bascalupe. I also have Andy Revkin next week. I uh, have Adam Rogers from Wired Magazine and many others who'll be joining these COVID calls. Thank you very much, uh, Samantha Montano and Patrick Roberts for spending this time with us here today. And uh, please join us next week for COVID calls, Monday, 5 p.m. Eastern time. Thanks everyone.